Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. and welcome to this episode of the Musicians Venture Podcast. I am your host, Nick O'Brien, and I am so delighted today to be joined by Emil Pandolfi. Um, and I will get into just who Emil is, and we will dive absolutely more into to who Emil is over the course of this conversation, um, but just really excited to have this conversation. Um, Emil is a second-generation Italian born in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, music was a part of his family life. His father played guitar and mandolin, and his mother, while she wasn't a musician, she loved and encouraged music study for her children. So Emil, as we'll dive into, uh, began piano lessons at, uh, at age five, and that has taken him, you know, through college and in and, and, and graduate school, and uh, he's, he's kind of you know, made a career for himself playing pop standards, uh, and he fell in love with musicals and movie themes. He spent several years performing in clubs and theaters um, in the Virgin Islands and England, and in, and of course back in the U.S. in Denver and in, in L.A. Uh, while, while he was in L.A., uh, he did tours that included um, U.S. and Australia, performing on several recordings, including his own. Uh, rehearsal, studio pianist, theater and opera coaches, and of course, nightclubs. Um, he has had just a, a really, really uh, decorated c career, and today he's known as one of the world's premier pop pianists. Since 1990, he has recorded more than 30 solo albums on his own label, and his CD sales have sold upwards of three and a half million copies. Uh, so... And, and on the streaming platforms, online, on, on Spotify, uh, Emil has 15,000 followers and averages about a million streams per month. He's had five and a half million listeners since 2015 when he joined that, uh, that, uh, that platform. So we are going to have a very, very interesting conversation about a, a performance career that has spanned 25 years from a seasoned artist that connects with his audience at a very personal level as he shares his love of life, laughter, and music. And oh, by the way, Emil is also an author, and we will definitely dive into Emil's book as well. So we have a lot to cover. Emil, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to be speaking with you. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's, it's, a, it's a real pleasure. I'm looking forward. Yeah, so let's start where we are right now. Um, so what does, the, what does the music career and the day-to-day -day of Emil Pandolfi look like right now? Well, right now, I'm in, first of all, I'm really old, so I've been doing this a very long time. Age and, is only a number, my friend. <laughs> and and I've been doing this a long time, and I have, uh, I have a music studio, which is separate from my house. I've had this studio for about 25 years. It's where I've recorded my last 20, 20 albums or so. And uh, so I spend most of my days pretty much by myself in my studio. Uh, I'm doing some uh, original tunes now, which is unusual for me. As I mentioned, as you mentioned, most uh, all of my albums and all, almost all of my performance career has been my arrangements of uh, cover tunes. They've been from, from movies, from musicals and some of the old standards. And what I, what I specialize in, what seems to come most naturally to me is taking an already beautiful melody that I like and then embellishing it in one way or another and making it my own take on that melody. And that's what I love to do. So what I do uh, at the studio every day is as I'm, I'm, I'm back and forth from my computer to the piano. Uh, and as I say, right now, I'm doing mostly streaming. Uh, Obviously, we're not doing album CDs anymore. They're dinosaurs, but but they were fun when they lasted. Yeah, well, I I was immediately drawn to a line um, in your bio that I think 
may uh, be a good transition into to the next part of the conversation. And that line is that it's been said that your your music um, it, it it creates this free flowing emotional manner that seems to go to the music's very soul. Uh, that is a very very um, deep and uh, and and descriptive way to explain your music. And so I wonder how does that connect to who Emil was at five years old when you started with piano lessons? Like what was this draw toward toward music in general and toward the piano um, specifically? Tell, take me take me through take us through uh, the early parts of your life and, and how you kind of solidified as music being a calling for you. Well, that that's easy. It, it was it was always there. I never had a there wasn't one moment when I said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be a pianist. Uh, but I, I do remember uh, that it was before I took lessons. So since I took, took, started lessons at about five years old, it was before that that Grandma asked me, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I said, I'm going to play the piano. There was always a piano in the house. I, didn't, I, ne- I was never one of these kids who just went over to the piano and started playing. I didn't play until I had lessons, but I, I loved every minute of my lessons all the way growing up, all the way through college, uh, so there, there, and in other words, there wasn't a time that I said, "Oh, I'm going to be a musician." It was the most natural thing in the world, and I was surrounded by music. And part of that is uh, being Italian. Opera is kind of pop music, and every man in the house thinks he's Pavarotti. And uh, we really sang along to some of the opera arias that we had on, like I guess what my dad listened to on the radio or in records was uh, a lot of opera, a lot of classical music, almost entirely classical music, except for some big band stuff that he liked. And that's what I, that's what I grew up hearing. And uh, out of four siblings, three of us uh, are professional musicians. My two sisters play violin professionally. And it was the most natural thing to do in the world. I never considered doing anything else, actually. So I don't know if I answered your specific question, but that's and, a... And- is 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 playing music and just interacting with music? I would imagine it's it kind of brings a, 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 about this kind of flow state for you. You don't have to think about it. It just feels like you're just being. You're not doing. Am, am I am I wrong in that? No, that that's that is right. It's it is the most natural thing in the world. But I, I to your you mentioned a, a quote earlier. I what my strength has always been, and what my book is about, is getting your music that you feel in your heart of hearts and getting it across a space to the other to the listener. Often we find musicians who are extremely talented and technically gifted, but for some reason or other it doesn't move you. And for whatever reason it is, my music and the reason it's been successful is that it it moves people. It uh, we, we've had. Again, over a 30-year career, thousands and thousands of letters and now emails. They started with letters back in the day. Uh, saying just that, it, it, it somehow, I've somehow been able to get across, and, uh, across from what I feel about the music to the, to the listener so that it actually resonates, which is what I've thought, always thought music should do, is it should bring about an emotional experience that the person wants to feel. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I mean, that that is why I am such a big music lover. Um, and it's, it you know, that connection that I can sense between the performer and the music that is being created, it, 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 it invites you in to feel that same level of connection, or at least it invites me in to feel that same level of connection. I'm not sure how everyone else experiences music, but that's how I experience it. And I got to be honest, I've listened to your stuff and I felt it from the moment like I started playing it. Like without I, I listened to your stuff before I read your bio and all that stuff. And I was just like, ooh, like it, it, it spoke to me. So so you're absolutely right. And what you're saying is, you know, for whatever reason, it does speak to people and gives it brings about this emotional experience. Um, I can attest to that because because that's that the experience that I had. So so. Tell me about like just the like let's like, re- reflect on your career, and mm-hmm. you know you've you've been successful. 
um, you know, in, in many ways, like, what does that mean to you? Like, what does success mean to you in the music industry? And, and, and I guess, what is it, how, how does it help you kind of like, just like, what kind of, how do I say this? Like self-worth or just like your place in this world? What, what, what does the success that you've experienced say about, about the feeling of your life in general? Okay. That's a good one because for very first off, uh, and I'll get more into it is I realized at some point you don't have to be famous to be successful. I am super successful and I'm not famous at all. But I'm super successful. And by success, for me, it means I, I have never been, I, I always want a full life, full of friends, full of family. I have, I have grandchildren now. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed every moment of every day as long as I can remember because, uh, see, I've, I've not been, I don't have the kind of personality that some people do that is focus, focus, focus. And you're Juilliard and you do the piano competitions and you become a brilliant artist and but it's I don't like that kind of stress and and I'm simply not that dedicated I I, I love what I do but it, it allows me to have a full life by my definition which is spend time with my friends and my family and read good books and take vacations and uh, and and so so as far as that goes that's the first thing that you don't have to be famous to be I think I'll, I'll, I'll get on to say a little more about that. I think that many musicians early on, in, in most occupations, you get a job, you try to get further yourself, and if it's corporate, whatever, you try to get better and better at your job, but you don't think in terms of being famous. But in music or the arts, it's as though you're either famous or you didn't make it. And that's total nonsense um, uh, because they're only like, 10 Michael Jacksons and Beyonce's in the world. And then there's the rest of us who are fine musicians, have a wonderful, happy life, but are not famous. So that's important to think of early on in your career, because I, I think a lot of people make that mistake, including myself. I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be really well known and famous at some point. And, uh, and then I found out there's a whole lot of life besides that. Uh, the other thing is, um, uh, see if I'm, I'm if I'm talking to your question. Would you remind me? I'm <laughs> my short-term memory isn't what it used to be. I think. <laughs> yeah. No. It's, I mean, you you're, you've done a, a fabulous job of, of 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 talking to kind of what I was trying to get at. It's just like how do you view success and yeah. what it means for your life? And it sounds like you know the success that you've experienced has has provided you. Um, you know, the means to and the and the freedom and the flexibility to be able to do uh, what 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 you hold to be most important in life, which is, you know, time with with loved ones and and learning and reading good books and and exploring the world. And um, and, you know, you're you know, it's, it's interesting that you have reached this level of success um, to have this kind of freedom. And it doesn't come with sometimes what is the burden of 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 notoriety of you know mm -hmm. um and you know uh allison m uh another host of this podcast has interviewed uh classical musicians before um and it's interesting that they've they've explained that like where their music has taken off and 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 one particular episode that i'm referencing here is you know um martin mayer who uh is incredibly famous in china but he, but in canada where he's from like he can walk around the street and nobody bothers him but like he has to wear like the, the sunglasses and the hat when he's in china because he doesn't want to be bothered and so I, th this just brings up another question for me with with all the success that you've experienced you know um all the you know millions and millions of stream streams on spotify all the records um I wonder why there hasn't been this like this fame that that has that has accompanied you and your and your music career. Who do you who do you think are is playing your music? It, it, you know where where is it being played? Is it just in a kind of a music and listening environment where there isn't this sort of like kind of cultural norm of 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 categorizing someone as famous? Um, or, or or how do you make sense of that? 
Yeah, you know, I, there was a long time I wondered that because <laughs> I, I have a, I like my music and I think it's in the in its genre, which is piano solo. I think it, it is outstanding. I mean, I really do. Or I wouldn't I wouldn't com- continue to do it. Um, so I wondered that, but I had I had to just put that. Who knows? I mean, right now, like right now, interestingly to me, uh, because I'm playing covers of, uh, of movies, musicals, and old standards. I kind of had the and when I play concerts, I've done uh, like thirty concerts a year in performing arts centers, and we have from five hundred to a thousand seats. So that's so it, it's some degree of notoriety there, but. Uh, but I, I, most of my live uh, audiences are uh, over 50 years old, yet on, on Spotify and Pandora, where I have 800 million streams, the listening age is from uh, uh, 25 to 35, or 18 to 20, 35, which really surprised me. So, so I, I just say, I don't know. I, I mean, it's just, it's in the hands of the gods. And I think there was a long time ago, I stopped trying to have, pushing that as my goal. My goal was to play better, play better, play better, and record more tunes that I love and that I hope people will like and enjoy hearing. But as far as, there's, there's not much I can do about making me famous. And sure. Point. I think you grow up and you say, "So I'm love. Do I love my life? Yeah. Am I happy every day? I, every day I come to work, I can't wait to get there. Yeah. So, so it's it's pretty it's pretty cool. Yeah, that that is pretty cool. <laughs> um, I like I said, it's like you you have the the joy uh, to 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 do this work that that brings you so much um, so much life, so much love for for your own life." Um, and you don't have to worry about, you know, the public notoriety that you're, I think you're kind of lucky in that regard, my man. <laughs> well, there, there was a time when I was in my uh, early 20s, I thought the best life in, in my fantasy world that you could have would be that of a best-selling author, because nobody knows what you look like, but you're a best-selling author and you're rich and you could do book tours every now and then. But even when you do a book tour, who, who knows what Dan Brown looks like? I don't know. Right, right. I don't know. But they're, I'm sure they're happy in their uh, bungalow in Tahiti. So um, I want to get to your book uh, in just a moment because it keeps coming up and, and we're definitely going to dive into it. But first, um, I'm curious, how did you learn like the business of the music industry? Because hmm. most often I think, you know, uh, musicians – uh, are creatives and that's what comes naturally to them and and the entrepreneurial aspects of actually turning that into a career uh, that that provides you with the means to continue doing it um, and not have to you know go get like a, a quote-unquote real job like that can be a struggle um, so I'm curious what was that what was that what was that like when you finally got into it and you started to understand oh there's 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 a there's business here um, how did you learn that Okay, the short answer is I didn't. I married it. Oh, okay. And and I didn't do that on purpose. I married somebody I loved, and I was playing cocktail piano and this and that, you know, uh, just just journeyman piano uh, jobs, playing for acting classes. I lived in L.A. at the time, so I was playing, playing for acting classes, dance classes, uh, whatever I could do, and playing at the comedy store, uh, which is a comedy club in L.A., uh, playing there at night, and I was doing this and that, and I was getting by, mostly paying the rent, not always being able to pay the rent. But I, I married Judy, and and we and we continued that for about, gosh, the first six years of our marriage, I guess. Um, she didn't. She she had taken one music business course in L.A. Uh, because she liked she just liked musicians and. And she liked me, and I was a musician, so I, that was, <laughs> it works out. Yeah. So, so she got the um, okay. The short answer is Judy is responsible for the entire business. She created she created the record label, which we call Magic Music. She uh, she uh, writes contracts for the. Uh, we, we've done most of our uh, performance career without an agent. 
And that was for two reasons. We, we, nobody was banging on our door saying, I want to be your agent. And we didn't particularly want to. We wanted to be self-presented uh, anyway at the time. And it's been worked out very successfully for us. We've had an agent for a few years. Out of, out of the 30 years of playing concerts, we had an agent about two years, three years. And uh, we, we did just as well without having one. But that's because Judy is really, really good at this. And she started, uh, There's in my book, there's a whole chapter called You Have to Have a Judy. You have to have somebody if it's not yourself. You don't have to marry one. You don't have to hire one. You can have a friend. You could be, some people can do it themselves. I could never, never, ever, I can't balance a checkbook. But somebody has to be doing that and doing it as a full-time job, which Judy did. And, and there's a lot of, there's a whole lot in the book that's more specific. But she started by getting a book called This Business of Music, which is kind of the Bible of, of, of the music business. And that was back, you know, before computers even. I mean, it was 30-something 30, 30 years ago. And, um, and she studied, and she happens to be brilliant, and she happens to be really good at business, and, and she, she took it really step by step. So there's there's a lot to say. I mean, there's a whole lot of what those steps were, and but there's not enough to, time to cover them right here. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, and I I think I remember you uh, telling me uh, in an email exchange that Judy is is from the Racine area in Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, we were that, up there just a couple of months ago. That's awesome. Uh, how wh how did you enjoy your time in, in Wisconsin? Oh, we love it. We we spent we this time we were going for her mom's ninetieth birthday, so that okay. was, it was a big family gathering, and it was lovely. Uh, normally, and other times when we've been up there, actually many many times, uh, we go up north to um, what is the uh, Door County? Oh yes, beautiful beautiful places, beautiful art museums. Uh, we bought our wedding rings at Door County. In, oh. in a wow! So you have. You have Wisconsin ties on you at all times. That's awesome. We have to. Yeah. How about them Packers? I mean, we have to. <laughs> I wouldn't That's cool. dare root. I was never from that part of the country. I would never dare root for another team. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you know it. You know the game. Um, so yeah. So the 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 book continues to come up, and obviously that's a big part of um, of of your music career. And 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 the you know kind of a different medium for you to kind of intersect with with the industry. Um, tell me about what well, you know. First, let me kind of intro the book. Emil's book is called "Play It Like You Mean It: Supercharge Your Playing and Let Your Piano Work for You." Um, so, take me back to the moment when you just you you were considering a book. Like, why? And and like, is there something that you wanted to say? And did you? Did you grapple with this idea of writing a book or was it a pretty like clear cut decision and you were like, I, I got to do this? Yeah. Uh, what happened is I, I have never been a teacher by profession and I, I don't consider myself a teacher. My two sisters are brilliant teachers. Actually, three sisters were all, all brilliant teachers. Uh, I don't have the, the, the urge or the ability to teach someone to, to play. But I, after all these years, I'm 76 years old now, and after all these years, I was thinking, I do have a lot to say. I mean, because I'll listen to some uh, uh, musician, be it a pianist or something, some other, and I think, gosh, they have so much talent, but they're not, they're not moving me. It just doesn't do something for me, and I think I could help with that. And I, that's where the name of the book came from. It, it wasn't about, I toyed with the idea of a subtitle that would be everything you need to know about playing the piano except how to play the piano. So we, we assume you can play the piano, but how come people aren't saying, oh my God, that was so moving. And that's what I wanted to, that's what I tried to get across. It's, it's, it's rather than, since I haven't taught for the last 50 years, I could put it in a book, what I learned in the last 50 years. So that's what was the impetus for the book. And I, this is your first book, yeah. right? What was that book writing process like? Was it similar or really different than composing and, 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 and playing music? 
It was stream of consciousness um, or ADD. I don't know which one. <laughs> one, one of those. But it, when you just, I got ideas. I, I, just, I found myself. I found I found myself. I had so much to say that I, did, I guess I'm very loquacious. I had, I'd start writing about what I think about a certain subject about, uh, I'd take a particular piece of music that I love and talk about it. And I would find that literally five hours went by and I hadn't stopped typing at the keyboard. So I, so I, I did this over a period of about a year uh, of just putting down any ideas. All of a sudden I think, how, how is it that when I play these trills, what do I do with the other fingers while I'm playing a trill? And, and why am I doing a trill in the first place? Um, and so I, I would do this stream of consciousness thing. And then uh, at the end, I got it's, it is a self published book, but with a very fine publishing company that do the you hire them and they do the editing and everything else. So we spent another year editing and making it make sense. Uh, so that's that was the procedure of never having written a book before. And I don't know if I ever will again, but. How does it feel to have written a book in addition to all of your, you know, all of your success as a as a as an artist as a musician? I, I can tell you, and I think that happens. Some people do this at a very early age. I'm doing it at, at my uh, years now, uh, well into my career, and I feel like, um, I mean, I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon, but I do do feel like a legacy is part of what you. Uh, uh, what you do, I have I have my recordings out, and I think, okay, that's done. I'm not going to do any more big recording projects. I'm not planning to. I'm, I might, but I'm not planning to. Uh, so I'm recording one or two songs every few months, uh, uh, and uh, and as far as the book goes, the book says that's when I read my book back. I think yes, that's what I meant to say. So whether people like it or they buy it or. That's, again, that's one of those things I have no control over. But I said what I meant to say, and, and, and I feel, hmm, that's, that's good. I, it's interesting because, again, um, and I listen, to your, uh, I listen to parts of several of your podcasts, and the one with the uh, guy who can, uh, who's, who's famous in China, mm -hmm. and that, that reminded me because I listened to the, some of that. And when I was at a, a CD Baby conference a few years ago, there was a guy who was talking about uh, finding a niche market and putting everything you have into that niche market. And he said in passing, he said, if you had just just a thousand followers, just a thousand, and each one of them spent a hundred dollars on your merch, your T-shirts, your concerts, your whatever, that's a hundred thousand dollars. So you could you could have a happy life and be a very successful person, and in one little niche. And my niche happens to be fairly well. It's, it's it's still a narrow niche, solo piano. But it's but because of of streaming, because of international listening that you can do these days, it's it's very uh, it's very lucrative. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like uh, you know writing the book is something that um, that you you felt that you, you you needed to do. And having you know, having done it and reflecting on it, it's it does it, bring a sense of pride uh, to to who you are, to your career. It's, I guess it's more like I don't want to say closure or because I'm not done, but mm -hmm. but I am toying with the idea of doing fewer concerts and and uh, it actually feels good. I thought I, I have always told friends I'm going to play till I drop. Well, maybe not, you know. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I have a whole lot that I've done that I meant to do, and I've, I feel like for any musician, any artist, if you feel like you said what you had to say to, to that period of time, there's always more to do. But sure. If you feel confident, if I said, you know, I put out these albums, but when I listen back, I, mm, I don't really care for what I did. That's, that's not true. I listen back and I say, yeah, that's, that's what I meant. Yeah. I think well, that's... Go ahead. I just think that's very rewarding to you as a person, and uh, and and I, and all of that time, all of these 30, 40 years, fifty years, I've had time with my family. I've done trips. I've had vacations. Even when I was making a few hundred bucks a week playing a cocktail, if it as long as it was enough to pay the rent, 
I was a happy boy, you know? Yeah. Cause you weren't searching for that. You're, it sounds like you were searching for just like fulfillment and, you know, in so many ways, fulfillment actually doesn't come from a, a monetary gain. It, it comes from like an, in, an internal place. Right. And, and we, we have both said, uh, Nick, you and I, in, in this time, the business part has to be there if you want, if you want to make your living as a, as a musician. Yes, somebody has to do it. Um, uh, th- that's true. But for me, the, what you just said is true. It's very fulfilling. <clears throat> and- yeah. Yeah. But and, and as as you know, successful as you've been um, and as fulfilling as your career has um, has been. I, I would imagine that it has not come without challenges and, yeah. and difficulties that you've had to grapple with internally. Um, does, do any of those challenges come to mind? Any, any particular concerts or, or, you know, records that were just, you were really challenged to put together any, anything that comes to mind that you can look back on and say, man, that was a super adverse experience. Um, but I'm better because of it. Um, I'm just curious, like, you know, what was that challenge? Uh, okay, I almost never play with orchestra, so I'm a little bit nervous playing with orchestra. Otherwise, I'm never nervous. Uh, we were, I read, uh, listened again to one of your podcasts about uh, uh, not stage fright, but just anxiety about going performance on. anxiety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, getting on the stage, I'm standing backstage. I can't wait to get there. I've never experienced performance anxiety. I just can't wait. I, because I'm thinking, wait till you hear this, you know, Uh, it's i I'm giving the audience a gift and I can't wait for them to open it. But, but when I'm playing with orchestra, which, uh, I've, I was doing Rhapsody in Blue and Warsaw Concerto in one concert with an orchestra. And I'm not even going to say which I don't want I mean, they're probably throwing up thinking about my performance, and, and so you know, I I just wasn't hadn't prepared well enough. This is years and years ago, and I remember being so frightened because I wasn't prepared. It wasn't you couldn't call it stage fright; you'd call it not prepared. I mean, I thought I was, but um, uh, and I got through it. I fumbled my way through it. It was one of my poorest performances, but the the lesson for me was don't play with orchestras anymore <laughs> it wasn't it, it was you know i can live without that <laughs> and, and i don't and i thought while i was on stage I, i'm not kidding you i was saying if there is a god send down jackals to eat my face off because i don't want to be here and since God didn't send any jackals down, I figured there's not a God. <laughs> so it, it's interesting. It was horrible. That. It was the worst experience of my whole life. Oh, well, I'm, I, learned, I'm, you know. I learned from it two things. Prepare 10 times as much and don't play with orchestra if you don't have to. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Gotcha. Um, you know, what's, uh, what kind of, I mean, you've given a, a handful of, of, of little pieces of advice to, to musicians um, over the course of the conversation thus far. But I'm curious, you know, was there, was there ever advice that you, you heard from another artist or someone else, maybe, you know, disconnected from the music world that has really resonated with you and kind of guided you through, through your career that you'd like to pass along? I would say that it's, uh, it came from one of my teachers and it's... It, uh, early on in college and it was be the authentic you whoever whatever you don't you know I, I had every one of us as artists have our heroes and our idols and I certainly did and mine were all classical the Horowitz and Rubinstein and and uh, uh, Glenn Gould and some of these people that I just thought oh my god if I could ever play just a little bit like that that would be wonderful um, but so you get your technique as much as you can, whatever your uh, field of art is, you have to have the technique. But then be who you are. The authentic you is what is that's that's the only thing you can be best at. You can never be best at being the next Rubenstein. Um, so so that, that I think is what has been a guiding issue. And sometimes you think, yeah, but the authentic me isn't a moneymaker. Well, then you'll have to make your money somewhere else if you want to be authentic you. 
there's there's nothing wrong with having a, a day job and there's nothing wrong with making your money elsewhere than in music it, it everyone is different yeah i think that's something that um a lot of musicians that I'm friends with and, and even those that I'm just meeting, you know, for the first time on these on these podcast interviews, that's always seemed to be kind of like there's a there's a juncture in their career where they have to make that decision, you know, um, is is music something that I'm going to do um, because I love it or is it something that I'm going to do um, because I love it and because I need it to make me money. And I, I think obviously with in your case like you were doing it because you loved it and it seems like you um you know the gods didn't send you jackals to eat your face off but the god sent you judy um that 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 helped you kind of uh helped ease that decision a bit more um to just continue doing what you love to do and not have to necessarily worry about how it's going to make you money because you know that's someone else's job to take care of Well, here's, I have a bit of uh, something to say to into that, is I think some people, uh, particularly early on, make the mistake that if I can't, if I have to get a day job, that's saying I have failed at music, and it's not at all. It's, and, and there's nothing wrong with having two careers. I mean, so, so how many people have two or three jobs just to pay the bills? Well, we're lucky if, you know, if you have one job to pay the bills and one job because think about it, almost all of um, musical jobs in, in, the, in the performance area, not teaching, but in the performance area, uh, are done in the evenings. And most day jobs are day jobs. And there's nothing wrong with working 80-hour weeks. We've all done it. Sometimes you have to. And, uh, and, it's, and I think people say, well, I've, I've failed as a musician. No, you failed as a business person. You know, you didn't fail as a musician. <clears throat> And I just think that's important to recognize for self-worth. You you might be the world's greatest musician, but the world's worst businessman. Yeah, well, tying that back to something that you said earlier, you know, or maybe necessarily didn't say this, but you indicated it with with your comments of like, you know, about success and, you know, success isn't, you don't define success, you know, by monetary outcomes. You You define success through other, you know, aspects of your life. Um, and I think it's, it goes the same way with with failure. You know, we can choose you know, to define success and failure however we wish, not necessarily um, bound to, you know, the 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 stereotypical definitions of success and failure. And, you know, it's always interesting to, you know, failure is just an interesting topic in itself. And <laughs> we could spend a whole a whole uh, uh, podcast talking about that. But just just a little bit on that is. I think as as good as success feels, you know, in any realm, uh, any career, I think failure, I think failure out, like the feeling of failure outweighs, you know, the feeling of success, the, the, the low of failure can, can hurt more than the high of success can, can feel good in some ways. And, and I think it's important um, for all creatives specifically, um, to, to really take a look at, at failure and and reframe what it means to them, because it doesn't have to mean the same thing that it means to everybody else. And it probably shouldn't. Uh, you know, I've never heard that said in that way. And I think it's very important because why would you do that to yourself? You know, but, but we do. But uh, just, uh, you know, uh, what, what I did at that Jackal concert when I walked away from it, I said, I mean, I made the decision that I'm, first of all, I'm not going to give myself, even they say a year from now, can you play with the orchestra? I'll just say, sorry, I don't do orchestras. I mean, I just, I made a decision, but then I didn't dwell on it. I mean, this is, I've talked about it with you because this is a, a, a podcast where people should learn things, but I don't, you know, I just think, well, I sure screwed that one up, you know, and, and there you go. I, I, you know, you know how, that's a, that's another important thing is you can't dwell on it. Maybe you did have a massive failure, but you can't dwell on it. You, you don't keep punishing it two years later. You're still punishing yourself for that. What sense does that make? Now, hopefully two years later, you're still um, exalting in the successes that you had and how if you, if you just want to go back to a pleasure moment, go oh, that was so much fun doing that. Um, but but there's no, you know, uh, uh, 
I, I heard. I heard an. Uh, this is interesting. It was a movie with a Cary Grant movie, and Cary Grant just came into a cocktail party, party having had a fight with the bad guy, and he was all he was in a tux, but he was all messed up, and he was coming into the party, uh, looking all disheveled and fixing his tie, and this woman came up to him with her Manhattan glass, and and she said, "My, you look awful," and he said. How tasteless of you to mention it. <laughs> and, and then he walked into the party. He wasn't going to dwell on it. <laughs> it looked, looked like crap. But, <laughs> but why dwell on it? And, and that was the end of it. And, and it, it just, it, that actually taught me something about in life in general. You could say, oh my God, yes, do it. Oh gosh, what I, and go to the men's room and try to clean up. Or you could just say, yeah, I sure do look like crap, don't I? You know, and, and that's part of being happy. Yeah. Emil. Oh, I'm, that's so great. Like it's super interesting. Cause you know, personally, I, um, I spend a lot of time like thinking about like, and, 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 and reading and studying, um, like philosophy and and mental health and emotional health type type topics, and you know, I've come to believe that that the the external circumstances of our life, whether that be you know a poor performance with an orchestra, or you know not being able to cut it as the as the business person uh, a, a side of a of a music career, I think everything that we look at in our lives. You know, it, it's so it's so dictated by the lens in which we're looking at it through. And if we have, you know, if we we have these failures um, that we're dwelling on that leads to shame, and you know, it it th those are smudges. Those are smudges on the lens that we're looking through at our life, at ourselves, and we're not really seeing who we are. We're seeing who, you know, we're seeing things with out of focus you know it's it's smudged and i think the same thing kind of works with success because just as much as we can dwell on failure and have it drag us down i think we can let success go to our heads and mm. and and it, it comes it's the same kind of smudge you know you're not seeing clearly you're seeing it through a, a lens that that is dirty it, it's smudged up with 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 shame or with ego uh whatever it may be um, it, it's just a super interesting topic. Like I said, we could have a full conversation on this, but <laughs> this is not a, this is not about uh, failure and success. This is about Emil Pandolfi. But if you have anything to add to that, I, I would, I would love to hear it. Yeah. It's more about failure and success more than it is about Emil Pandolfi. Okay. Uh, all right. All right. I really, really, I genuinely like what you said. I hadn't uh, heard it said in that way, but you're right. Why look through that lens and, and you know, uh, uh, kind of apropos to that is that sometimes I will play for like a senior center. You know, we all do some things that we want to uh, donate some time and some music. And someone had asked me, do you play the same way if you're playing for the senior center as you do for a 1200-seat uh, performing arts center? And I said, absolutely. It's I'm, I'm trying to be the authentic me. I play as the best that I can. And am I as gratified when these people go, oh, my God, that was so beautiful? they happen to be sitting in a wheelchair or they happen to be sitting in a performing arts center. You, you give them the best of you any time that you can. And, and I think I have, I have settled into, I know what the best of me is and I can tell while I'm doing it, whether see, I learned my lesson to always be prepared at the boy Scouts, be prepared always or something. But, uh, I learned that, but, um, I, I will play the same as the best me that I can do for a family gathering as I will on stage. And yeah. Well, that's interesting to to hear you bring that into like the performance realm, because I think maybe not so much, you know, solo pianists, but, you know, a lot of the music industry is filled with, you know, you know, artists who are trying to, to, to quote unquote, make it. And to to make ends meet, you know, they're being, you know, asked to play shows in 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 bars and things like that, and and they're almost trying to kind of fit who they are into the environment and the audience that is in that venue, 
Mm. And I think often those artists walk away from those experiences feeling like, why am I doing this? But, but in the moment, it's, it's like you have to, it's almost like this feeling that you have to do this, you have to fit in. Um, mm. Otherwise, you're going to be, uh, you're going to have this feeling of failure, if no one's paying attention to you if you're just kind of ambient sound in the corner of the of the bar and no one's paying attention to you you might walk away from that experience feeling like a failure but again that is someone else's perception of you and it may have been um you know smudged if we're c- continuing to use that kind of lens at life uh perspective by your attempt to fit in versus your authenticity and this desire to belong. I think there's a strong difference between fitting in and belonging. If you're fitting in, you're changing mm-hmm. who you are to it, an attempt to fit in with who's around you. Belonging is not about fitting in, in my mind. Belonging is you are who you are, and the people around you uh, adore that, and they and they want you a part of, of that experience, of, of their evening, of their life, whatever it may be. Um, so Anyway, like I it just I'm really connecting with you, Emil, on on the notion that like authenticity as a as a musician is of the utmost importance. And I think maintaining that level of authenticity and, and a connection with yourself um can help rid uh you know some of those external circumstances or external circumstance driven thoughts that we dwell on, whether that be success or failure. Well, you know, I have, I, I, I love that. I mean, I genuinely do. I, uh, and and I'm uh, uh, again, an, a pertinence to this is what I call work for hire. Not I, what I call it is work for hire. Unless someone says you, I want you to write a jingle for this thing. It's not now. That's not about me being a meal. That's me about writing a jingle for this uh, product if I can. And if the people who do that for a living, I think if you. In your in your mind, when you're playing, you're you're playing for a uh, New Year's Eve band, uh, and, and you have to play these certain songs that you wouldn't normally play. You're playing a work for hire. Do you want to do that? Then do it. But know that it's a work. For, it's not. Well, they didn't see the real me. They didn't come there to see the real you in that case. Or mm. or are are you playing? I've as a cocktail pianist. How many times have I had to play during dinner? Or and there are people serving dinner and there are spoons and forks making noise and your background you could either feel god they're just not appreciating me or i don't have to no you're playing for background music you're supposed to be wallpaper and yeah. so if you know that and if you and it's okay with you which it was okay with me to be wallpaper then uh then then i would do that and 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 i take home a paycheck and that's what I, that was i was there for and when i didn't when i no longer had to be wallpaper to get a paycheck i didn't do it anymore but mm-hmm. but right this minute if if my fortunes changed i hope not and i had to g- get jobs playing anywhere well i would uh, i'd play cocktail again and i would know that i'm playing where i'm gonna I, I, by the way i loved cocktail piano because you're sitting there you're playing but you're talking to the people sitting around the piano and it was an actual cocktail bar with a piano and people are were they're making noise. They're telling jokes. You can play wrong notes. You don't play whatever. You just go, whatever you play, you play. And I loved that. And I, I had that as a total separate thing from being the. I was still being an one version of an authentic me because that's because I enjoy doing that. I enjoy conversation and uh, uh, talking with people over a piano. But the but playing background piano is ambient noise is okay with me if i if i take the job if i take the, if you don't want it don't take the job it's like i'm i'm a i'm i made my living as an accompanist in um in LA for years and as an accompanist you are the second guy you're one tier down it's not your show and you got to remember that and your whole job is to lift that vocalist or trumpet player or whoever it is and make them sound the best they can and you're a supportive role a very important supportive role but if you don't want to be that then don't take the job you know Mm -hmm. i've seen accompanists who can't wait till they get to show off that's not the place to do it so i think it's a i have a kind of a holistic viewpoint of the musical career because i've done every every kind of it i mean i really have um played for acrobatic you know, gymnastic routines and things. And 
all, all sorts of things that, that uh, and I do cover a lot of that in the book. But there are all sorts of ways that you can make music as long as you know what you are there for. And if if you do not say, when I'm doing work for hire, that's, gosh, that's not, that's beneath my dignity. Well, if it is, don't do it. Mm-hmm. But it's not beneath my dignity, and it's not beneath my dignity today. To People still ask me to to play for a dinner or something, and I say, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that these days. Because I don't want to do it anymore. But if if I had to feed my family, I would do it. And it wouldn't yeah. be... It wouldn't be compromising my integrity or making me less of a musician. It would just be work for hire. And if they get that through your head, I think that's important to, to, to continue making your living as, a, as an artist. Yeah, it's beautifully, beautifully put, Emil. Um, so as, I mean, you have, you know, played in many different, you know, environments for many different types of people, and you know it's interesting to hear you say that you, you loved the cocktail jazz um, and just the interaction with people around the piano. Um, is there one particular performance uh, in your career that stands out as, um, boy, that was just the most fun I've had. I've connected with the people. Is there one venue that's done that for you? Is there one show that stands out to you? And if so, why? What was wow. that experience mm-hmm. like? Yeah, I, I honestly can't say that, that I have one that, that comes to mind. Um, I, I, I played at Liverpool Cathedral, which was a phenomenal, phenomenally beautiful venue. I played at Catherine Palace in St. Petersburg. I played in St. Mark's Square in Venice. And, uh, and then I've played in uh, a, a small uh, uh, performing arts centers in North Carolina that were just as thrilling because I think for me, Anytime I play my very best, and my very best is defined, I'm going to play all the notes because I'm, I've been doing it over the same thing over and over again. But when I really connect with people, it could be uh, in a small town in uh, North Carolina or it could be in St. Mark's Square. And, uh, and because, as I said earlier, I try to put all of myself into any of those performances. It's not... So I, I really don't have... Oh, I, I can tell you one that was... Aha, ha, 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 ha. Here we go, memory, here we go. I remember slowly coming back here. <laughs> in 1984, uh, the Olympics were held in Los Angeles. And they had 84 pianists, because of 1984, playing Rhapsody in Blue. And, but because there was no way we could all play together that you can imagine there's no we were playing Rhapsody in Blue because there's a lot of notes anyway you couldn't possibly play in a stadium so they took four of us into a recording studio and recorded four of us playing Rhapsody in Blue and I was one of those four and that was what was broadcast uh, during the opening ceremonies of the 1984 Olympics and that that was unlike any other experience I ever had or ever will have Uh, brilliant and was it was it the ex- which which experience are you referencing here? The experience in the studio recording it, or the experience of of hearing your your music being played um, in the opening ceremonies of, of the Olympics? Well, it was it was uh, not the recording session because the recording session was just a recording session, which I'd done sure. many of. But the but sitting there in the stadium with eighty four pianists, all of us sitting there all dressed in powder blue tails, by the way. <laughs> mm. <laughs> the 80s, the 80s. Anyway, yeah. we had tails. <laughs> and but sitting in that stadium and you know way way up here like this and and the, the however many thousands of people were there and uh, and John Williams was conducting the orchestra. Again, that was John Williams is only this big <laughs> if you look down if you look down from the the stadium. And, uh, and, and of course, that was recorded, too. He was, he was conducting a live orchestra, and we were playing live pianos, but none of that was being mic'd. So everything that was being broadcast was... So, that, yes, that was thrilling, thrilling hearing, hearing, knowing that that's you being broadcast live. And, and, and then the sitting there in that stadium, oh, my gosh, uh, you know, uh, once in a lifetime. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, you were speechless at the time. It seems like you're 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 struggling to find words to put to it even now. 
um, you know, decades later. So I appreciate you sharing, you know, like kind of your experience with, with that opportunity. Um, so speaking of recording, uh, you've shared uh, with us a song to feature at the end of this episode called, or ex- excuse me, a piece um, to, to, to share at the end of this episode uh, called Aquarium. So what can you tell me about this piece and, and the inspiration behind it, the, you know, the, uh, just the process of, 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 of writing it, of playing it, of recording it? What, what, what is, tell me about this piece and, and, and your experience with it. And it's it's a piece by Camille Saint-Saëns, so it's not an, I've really done no originals to, to speak of. Uh, uh, so it, it it is aquarium, and it's very the way it sounds is I always consider what I do in my arrangements like I call it sound painting uh, because I'm always trying to create a visual image in someone's mind, whatever their visual image version of it may be, but I'm trying to create a visual image. Uh, and this sound, this aquarium, first of all, it represents, I have a classical background, and so classical has always been my, my go-to uh, as far as if I'm, if I'm getting ideas for arranging a tune, it's almost always based on classical things I've learned through the classical music repertoire. So this is a classical piece, Camille Saint-Saëns, written in the, uh, be about 1910 or something like that. And it is called Aquarium because it is about, it, it, it does this and that with the fish and the water and the, the and it's very, it's very much sound painting. So that's why it shows it as an example. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm 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 gonna go back and 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 listen to it and with that kind of yeah. with 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 that color in mind. Um, so Emil, you've got some pretty big plans. Uh, you seem that you I like on your website you call it like your 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 tours like musical yeah. adventures. Yeah. Um, I thought that was very very uh, interesting and knowing knowing you like I know you now it's very fitting. Um, so tell me about some of the upcoming musical adventures. You've got some 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 unique experiences ahead of you. Yeah, yeah. We're actually uh, about ten days from now. Um, uh, we're leaving for Greece for Athens, uh, and then we'll take a, a a cruise to from Athens to Venice. And I will play. When I say we, we have a group of fans who come and we have this time we have, we usually have about 40 and this is, we have about 40 on this trip. And the first place that I will play uh, is in, in uh, Athens. There's a, one of the uh, Orient Express train cars has been made into a restaurant and uh, it's, uh, so I'll be playing, they have a piano. So I'll be playing a concert for my, our guests in that train car of the Orient Express. So, the, uh, wow, how, how cool is that, you know? And then, and then uh, play on board the ship in their showroom. They have a showroom, of course. And, and we, we always do, um, we, we, last March we were in Iceland. But we, when we do cruise ships, we always do small cruise ships, like from 200 to 600 passengers. Because I really, I just personally don't care for the, big it's like a hotel on the water with 5000 people and it's a very different experience and but what we like are these the the first two we did were sailing ships i mean actually five masted schooner 200 passengers but they had a piano and so we were we were 30 of those 200 passengers and and they do day trips of course excursions and so forth so i'm i'm very much looking forward to that and next march we're doing iceland again because it was a very popular destination but we've done uh scandinavia and as i said i played in uh st petersburg before russia did what they just did uh that was a couple of years ago and um yeah so so it, it so that's something that we do yearly so i get to travel um, I'm doing fewer concerts, live concerts, just by choice, and uh, and I'm doing more and more streaming. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was um, last night. Uh, I put in a late night at the office, and it was a lot of kind of deep work. And your music uh, was the perfect kind of sound for me to 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 be experiencing. Um, for focus and, 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 and deep work. So I, I appreciate that you're on streaming platforms because 
that's you know it's it certainly helped me and i'm sure it's you know it's the other 80 million some uh or 800 i, I can't remember exactly it's, it's millions and millions of people that have, sh- have streamed your music and uh, and so i'm sure they're equally appreciative um emil so i always end you know our our interviews with the same question and you've given me a, a, a lot of color uh or given the, the the listeners a lot of color um for how you might answer this question but when when someone thinks of Emil Pandolfi, you know what is the most important thing for them to know about you? Hmm. That I love my life as a musician, and I'm not only a musician. I'm I've had I I've always wanted from the time I was a, as a kid. I wanted a full, varied life with uh, lots of experiences with music at the forefront, but. It wasn't only music, and that, that's just, that was my choice. I, I, I guess I've, I've, been, I've been blessed in so many ways. I mean, I feel like I have a, a charmed life. I have, yes, we've had things happen to us. So I, I had a house that burned down, so that's not, that's not any fun. But the whole family's attitude when that happened was, well, going forward. Now, now we don't have to clean out the closet. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, that's one way to look at it. That's I like. Yeah, that. I remember saying, I I had a I had a show about a month after that uh, fire happened, and I I was saying on stage, I said, I have a junk drawer, but in my new house, I have a junk drawer, but I don't have any junk. <laughs> yeah, you're and right, because junk is kind of accumulated over or over a period of time, and and we the whole family were good about it. I mean, we it was okay, you know. It's one of those things, things things happen. But the way you behave toward them, honestly, there's uh, my daughter who was 21 at the time. She said that I'm glad it happened when I was this young because I realized it's not that bad. Mm. Yeah. Oh, Emil. So, you know, like I said before, I, I, I listened to your music. I read your bio. But for me, you know, personally, as a music lover, um, you know, I am most drawn to the music uh that is that that is made by the people uh who i am who i am most drawn to and um that's why i feel fortunate to to be in you know a host of a podcast where once a week i get to sit down with a musician and kind of dig into their their life story their their career story kind of the some of the the challenges and the tribulations and how they've experienced those and uh, so I so appreciate you um, kind of opening up and 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 being honest about who you are and what you are and and where music sits in your life. Um, it's made me lean into your music even more, my man. Hey, thanks. That's that's great. That's wonderful. Music should connect souls to souls. Oh, Emil, that's the most beautiful thing I've heard today. You know, <laughs> music should connect souls to souls. Thank you so much. And great. I think on that note, we'll just we'll just end it there. Unfortunately, because I would I would I could I feel like I could talk to you for hours, my man. Me too. Um, Enjoying this. Um, but hey, if you uh, if you ever make your way back to Wisconsin to visit your yeah. wife's family, you know, reach out uh, to Wisconsin Music Ventures. And I know you're you're not playing a lot of concerts anymore, but I, I, I would imagine that there would be a new audience waiting for you here in Wisconsin if you would chose to, uh, to maybe do a cocktail show. There's a few yeah, places I mean, in, in Milwaukee I, I could I could think of that that would love to have you. So um, I I. I I look forward to the opportunity for our uh, our paths to cross again, and for for us to to maybe connect soul to soul again. That would be nice, Nick. Thank you. It's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yep, absolutely.
Thanks for listening to the Musician's Venture Podcast. Please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. Find us on social media at The Musician's Venture on Facebook and Instagram, and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms, and hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. The Musician's Venture Podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.